Well, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2 is where we find ourselves this evening coming back to this great discussion. We've had a little bit of a hiatus at the blessing of hearing from our brother Bill Morgan. Thank you for that excellent message, brother, and that encouragement. And, uh, of course, last week's uh, temperature-driven hiatus, so it's been a few weeks since we've been here. Let me make one comment, too. We were praying for our missionaries. I have a uh, a prospectus. We had the wonderful blessing of having Bill and Kelly Housley here this weekend. Phenomenal equipping hour. They left me with a a little prospectus that gives, uh, it's about uh, 26 pages, and it talks about all of the things that are going on in their preparation for the school. And, you know, I, I, I just, I, I'm overwhelmed at the way the Lord is working in their lives. I know another couple who were in Papua New Guinea for about the same amount of time as the Housleys. And they reached one tribe and did an amazing work in that they were able to do and, and get a language in place and begin translation work and get a good share of the New Testament translated for them to understand that the Housleys have done that and that is spread through 10 different villages and that they are preparing and that there actually are educational systems in those villages that the elders of the churches are running and now that they're moving to uh, a a quasi-national school that they are building. Folks, this is not what happens in most missions fields. This is the hand of the Lord in an amazing way. And if you want to see that prospectus, please let me know. Um, I'd be happy to get it out to you. I've only got one copy. I will make extras if you're so inclined to look at it. But it is brilliant to see. Yes. Yes, you do have it on a stick. And we could pass it out electronically as well as hard copy if you would like. So please let us know. We'd love to get it into your hands. We're excited about that and uh, seeing what the Lord may do uh, with our continued desire to encourage and support them. We may even have the blessing of having them back to worship with us one time before they return to Papua New Guinea. Um, they are going to be here for a while as their daughter prepares to give birth and their other daughter gets ready to get married. So, All right, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 is where we're going this evening. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12. You know, as we think of our world today, and and so contrary, in fact, to what we just described with the Housleys, we have so many choices, don't we? I mean, think about all the choices. Choices for clothes, for cars, choices for homes, for friends, choices for food beyond compare. There's just really no end to the choices we have. Choices for different kinds of water, for goodness sake. I mean, how many different considerations can there be for all of these different choices that we have? And yet, these are certainly situations that have changed dramatically. I mean, uh, in the ancient world that we're speaking about, there w- not only weren't choices for water, in most cases, and often there wasn't water that was potable. That's really what the main use of wine became, is it helped purify the water. And, and so it was mixed, the wine was mixed with the water to help purify that water and make it potable so that they could drink it. Well, I believe that as we think of all of these choices that we have, and more so those a time when we didn't have them, there was an element of greater contentment 
that came before we had all these choices. You know, having had the privilege of going to Ghana and ministering there, you know, I, I found a, a people who many in our world were, say, the poorest, would say they were the poorest of the modern era. Most of them living on about 400 U.S. dollars a year. And yet there was tremendous contentment. There was tremendous happiness and peace in the Lord. And as we find more and more of our choices, it it tends to give us more of a concern for other things we ought to have and don't. And as we think of, of those choices and the result of them and that condition, really this is something that Paul responds to in our section tonight. And because of that, I've titled our message, The Obedience Response. The Obedience Response. Let's look at our text as we consider that title, The Obedience Response. Let me read through Philippians chapter 2 and verses 12 to 18, which we'll dive into tonight, but uh, I'm sure not get all the way through. Philippians 2 and verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent." Children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and I share my joy with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way and share your joy with me. The obedience response. As we consider this text, and our first point is here in verses 12 to 14, and I've titled that first point, Divine Working. Divine Working. Verse 12 begins the so then or the therefore in some translations. And as we've often discussed, this connects us back to the previous section. And and that's a vital section. We spent about four weeks on it. We're not going to go back over that. If you've missed some of that, please go back and listen to those messages. But it is a vital understanding as we recognize all that we saw In those first 11 verses, as we recognize that powerful introduction in verse 1 about all of the encouragement that we have, all of the blessings that we have in our faith that truly are overwhelming. And as we think not only of the blessings of our faith, we also saw the resulting unity that was to come forward as a result of those blessings. And that the humility was then to be our response because that was the best reaction to those amazing blessings and to the unity that came forward is that we were to be humble towards one another and really towards all. And that humility and that servanthood was best reflected in Christ. The perfect fulfillment truly 
of that humility in Jesus. And because of that ultimate servanthood humility that Christ brought himself forward, we saw that he was ultimately exalted in verses 8 to 11. And so now that we recognize this, now that we see the amazing joy in the church, the unity that comes from it, the fact that we are to respond in great humility as Christ did, and that because of his humility he was exalted, were then brought in consideration of Jesus to our text and title, the obedience response. And we come to our first point, the divine working. Paul begins by setting the table for us in verse 12. And the first thing on the table are the placemats, which are the greetings. And that greeting begins, so then, my beloved. So then, my beloved. You know, as we consider his amazing love that he brings forward for the church, we can't overlook that phrase. We might think, well, you know, that's just a nice statement that he makes. Paul is pouring out his heart about his love for these people. How do we we understand Paul's love for a church? You know, I, I think we find the most perfect expression in the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians in chapter 12, we see an account that we've read often because it speaks about all that Paul endured at the hands of the Romans. Excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. And in verse 21, he begins that very famous discussion of all that he went through in his life. He talks about his boldness and that he's the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Israelite of Israelites, the descendant of Abraham, the servant of Christ, speaking as if insane, far more labors, imprisonments, beaten times without number, danger of death, five times receiving 39 lashes, beaten with rods, three times stoned, journeys in the, and in danger from rivers, from robbers, from countrymen, Uh, being at sea, uh, almost killed there, labor and hardship. And notice in all of those, there's this escalating nature. It's just like bigger and bigger. You're like, oh my gosh, right? I don't know if I could endure the first part of that, let alone all the way through. And notice in that list what concludes it. As the list escalates, we get to verse 28. And he says, apart from such external things, all the beatings, all the sufferings, all the shipwreck, apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of the concerns for all the churches. This is his greatest burden. As all this builds up, it is, it is the burden of the church. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? John MacArthur says that a pastor ought never preach the book of 2 Corinthians until he has shepherded the flock for at least 10 years because he won't understand the depth. This is what Paul is sharing with us here and is expressing to us in Philippians as he calls them the beloved. There is no greater concern for him than the church. This is an understanding that each of you need to recognize as is carried by each of the elders of this church. The continual intense concern, the burden for everyone. 
for their spiritual condition, for the difficulties and for their battles with sin. And Paul, because of that, expresses to them, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, he moves forward, having brought down the placemats for us, (coughs) excuse me, having greeted them and put the placemats down he brings the plates next by addressing his topic just as you have always obeyed just as you have always obeyed obedience is the main topic and hence our title the obedience response but paul addresses their obedience just as you have always obeyed we talked about at the beginning of this letter to philippians what a great church this was arguably the greatest church in the new testament and he repeats that by saying here just as you have always obeyed when we talk about a good church and we want to be a good church what is the standard this is it beloved It's obedience. He lays out for here in this text what is the critical nature for every church. We go back to chapter 1 just to get a summary of this. Chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul says, In view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. As they participated in the gospel and brought it forward, the work that God has started, he'll continue. And this is what he is referencing when he says, just as you have always obeyed, this is that good work. So as he then brings out the the table or the uh, placemats and the plates he next comes with the silverware and glasses to finish the table setting as he discusses the extent of their obedience and he says regarding the extent of their obedience not as in my presence only but now much more in my absence as he discusses that extent of their obedience it's not just when he is there so when paul was at this great church their obedience was excelling but now he asked that it would be much more during his absence. Not more, not that they would continue on, but that they would excel much more in this element of their obedience. Doesn't this remind us a little bit uh, uh, about the understanding from the Gospels even back in, in 1 Thessalonians 4? Paul tells the church there two times in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 1 and verse 10 that they are to excel still more. He brings the most powerful section of application regarding purity, regarding removal of lust, and regarding their love of one another. And he tells them to excel still more. That wherever they are, he wants to see more of this. You know, when we think of this carrying forward not in his presence but in his absence i can't help but think of children in a home now when mom or dad are there you know they toe the line because they know that if they don't that they're likely to have some repercussions 
from their actions. So when mom and dad are home, they do the right thing. But when mom and dad leave, they're ready to tear the house down. Well, this is, it seems initially this is what Paul's exhorting them there. But really the house Paul is concerned about here is their spiritual house. This is what we see at the end of the verse as he brings the meat to the table and the obedience that Paul is calling for is that they would work out their salvation. It, it's not, this is not a works-based salvation. Paul's not saying that somehow we can earn our way to heaven. Not at all. But what he is talking about is that this salvation which already exists that they're to bring forward. He's speaking about sanctification. He's speaking about growing in obedience. He's talking about growing in holiness. And he needs to see that they recognize that this is their main job. That this is what they have to carry forward in. In 2 Corinthians, and we see this really throughout the scripture. We could turn to just about any book and we would see repeated references. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. Paul says, therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, making or perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We are to cleanse ourselves, beloved. We're, we're to recognize that inherent in our flesh is wickedness. Inherent in our flesh is darkness, is stain and uncleanness. And so we are to cleanse ourselves from that defilement of the flesh and to perfect holiness in the fear of God. All of our lives are to reflect that. Uh, another example uh, that we're also very familiar with from Ephesians 4, Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called walking, living our lives in a manner worthy of what Christ has, what has Christ done? What has Christ done for us? How amazing is it to recognize that our sins are forgiven, that he has removed them from us? And do we walk in light of those? Do we live our lives in a, as Paul says, a worthy manner? That worthy manner, as we've often heard preached and taught, is a reference to a pair of scales. So so Christ's holiness and what he has done is on one side of the scale and our holy living is to try to balance that out. Well, the scales are like this. So it's a continual effort that we have to make to try to rectify, to continue to try to live in holiness, to bring forward that truth. Of course, we've been teaching and preaching through the book of Hebrews, and there's no shortage in that book of this same proclamation, but nowhere better than what we just covered in Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since there is so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. All around us are the examples. As we've talked about, that is all the Old Testament examples from Hebrews 11, but it's all the beloved around us. It's all those in the church today that are continual examples. It's those who have poured themselves into our lives to open our eyes to the truth of Christ. 
These are the ones who we must recognize and in light of whose obedience, we too must run the race of endurance. We must not allow ourselves to be ensnared by our thoughts and the things that would keep us from pressing forward to Christ. You see, it's not the good things. It's not, oftentimes it's not even the bad things that are the danger for us, but it is those which are good that keep us from the best. The blessings of jobs that can be so consuming that they keep us from focusing on Christ. The blessings of, of relationships and children and, and the busyness of life. Are we so busy sometimes in our lives that we can't pull ourselves back to get alone with God? When was the last time you had some alone time with the Lord? Yes, Bible reading, yes, prayer, but just spending time alone with the Lord. How critical is that? We mentioned last week about the importance of our relationships and, and how our other relationships in our lives would do, work, wives, children, if we gave them the same attention that we give the Lord. How important is it for us to recognize this need to be working out our salvation? Again, those that would say that this is uh, an effort to move towards a work based salvation don't understand because this is divine working paul wants them to reflect this now much more because he is gone and they are the front lines the gospel must go forth beloved we are the front lines there there isn't a paul there isn't a paulus there isn't a cephas it's us it's Scott and Bill and Tom and Matt. and you know We're the ones who have to move forward now. Each and every one of us. And this is why this command is, is as important to us. Who is going to hear if not us? What does Romans 10 say? How will they hear without a preacher? And that doesn't mean the guy standing in the lectern. It means all of us who are living out the truth of Christ in our lives who are being willing to speak, we believe, therefore we speak. This, this has to be us. This has to be that pursuit of working out our salvation. And he tells us that we are to do so with fear and trembling. Why? Why, why ought we be fearful or trembling about working out our salvation or pursuing our sanctification? Well, a couple of reasons come to my mind. It's because of the size of the job. I look in the mirror and I go, man, the Lord's got a lot of work to do here. You know, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff that still needs to be brought in line. That scale, that worthy walk, but there's a lot that needs to be done here. And not only is it the size of the job, but it is the consequences of failure. We cannot fail. We cannot be those, as Hebrew talks about, who fall back from the faith, once having tasted, once having heard, once have experienced the Holy Spirit, and then fall away. For them it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Failure is not an option. And this, this element of fear, 
Well, it, it's exactly what we see in Proverbs 1.7. Is that not just a, a very familiar verse, even if not by memory? The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's where we start. That's where we recognize that if we don't make it, it is the wrath of the Almighty God pouring down upon us. This is why many of the examples are given to us in the Old Testament as Paul tells us that these were written for your example so that we would understand that God is a righteous and holy God and that He will judge sin. Isaiah carries forward this same idea at the end of his gospel, actually in the last chapter of Isaiah chapter 66, as he begins that text, Isaiah 66 and verses 1 and 2, says there, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is the house you could build for me, and where is the place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. When we read the word, do we we tremble? When we consider the obedience that we must have, does it bring us a holy fear of the Almighty God who has commanded us to obedience in this? This is not an option, beloved. When he says, work out your salvation, that's a command to us that we must recognize and that this is what we have to carry forward. Well, the divine working continues in verse 13 where he says, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is the one working through the believer By his Holy Spirit. Now, this is the message of John 15, is it not? Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So it is through Christ that we're doing this. Christ is in us. He's the one that we connect to. It's his spirit in us. It's him who we are directed and held to to allow ourselves to move this forward. And as we recognize this same truth, we understand another amazing blessing of our lives that it is God who is orchestrating all of these good works. God is the one who set them up. All he's asking us for is to move forward in them. This is the incredible truth of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We, you know, we often talk about these beautiful verses. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And, and we go forward and we exegete that and we talk about how that is God showing that he has saved us. That we do not save ourselves, we do not come to God on our own, that God calls us, that he has in fact called us from the foundations of the earth, and that it is through his grace that he has brought to us salvation. Again, our work's never achieving this, but then we we often stop and don't look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. 
God is the one who has prepared all of this, and and it's amazing to understand that. Yet, although God is the one who has decreed these good works, it is the believer who must carry the good works out. And this is where some people start to get a little bit of heartburn. As we determine that we have to submit to the Spirit's leading in our lives, some begin to wonder, well, do we really, is this really our responsibility? I mean, if God is doing these works, isn't he just going to make it happen? Is it, I mean, it's his will. It says so there. Well, we have to understand some kind of complicated stuff about God. And that is that God has two types of will that he reveals to us. There is his decreed will, not what we call his decorative will, and that is that which God desires and that is what he has laid out and that's what's being spoken about here, these good works that he has planned. But there is on the other side of God's decreed will, there is his preceptive will. Those are his precepts, those things that absolutely will come into being. You see, we still have a job to do. We are called to work out our salvation. Because there's a battle going on in us, isn't there? Isn't that what we read in Galatians 5, 16 and 17? Paul tells us in that important text, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Our flesh doesn't always want to do the good works, does it? When Saturday morning comes and, and, and there's an outreach and, you know, you've had about two days where you just have not gotten good sleep. Um, you know, the puppy keeps waking you up in the middle of the night. That would be somebody else. But in case that happened at your house. And Saturday morning comes and you finally have got, you know, it took you a while to get to sleep. You're tossed and turned and finally about one o'clock you went down and, you know, I know the light's on, but I am just out and the alarm goes off. And you're like, no. That's our flesh, isn't it? God has ordained those good works that you would walk in them. But our flesh, it lusts against the Spirit. And the Spirit wars against the flesh to help us. The Spirit is in us, guiding us, but it is a battle, and and it's a battle for all of us, and we ought to recognize that. So as we think about this parallel, it's a complex matter. We're dealing with our own complexities, our own battles in our minds and our will. And then we're trying to understand God's decreed will in these things. And, and, and when we come to it theologically and logically, we could be going, whoa, this is just a, a truckload that we're trying to get our arms around. But when we think about it practically, it's very, very simple. Practically, our response is obedience. Practically, we recognize, as the text tells us, that it is God who is working in us, both to will, that is his decreed will, that we would do this, and also to work, that is, that we would do the work that he has established for his good pleasure. 
When we do these things, beloved, we bring pleasure to the Lord. You know, I, I remember when my kids were little and, you know, I recently had uh, a family in the church talking to me about one of their uh, youngins down the line who was potty trained. You know, and how, what a huge thing that was. How excited they were to have accomplished that. You know, and, and to please mom and dad and, you know, mama and papa. And all of a sudden, you recognize that this is what children delight to do. They delight to please us. Do we not delight to please our Heavenly Father? And to realize that He, as a result of our obedience to what He's already set up, that because of that, we earn His good pleasure. It's kind of like, like being rewarded for something that God has given us the power to do we couldn't do it without his spirit that god has set up for us to do he's laid it out there so that we'd walk in it and then we get rewarded for it you know it says you know the blessing of giving when we give on sunday morning to to the church that that money that we give where does it come from of course it's god's everything is god's he tells us in his word the cattle on a thousand hills are mine all the gold and all the silver is mine. And yet, we're blessed for giving back but a portion of all that he's given us. That's how God works. That's the amazing element of this life of faith. And this is what it means to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Practically, that looks like the very simple things that we know to do how we grow in our sanctification. I love a sign that uh, I ran into a few months ago when uh, our dear brother and beloved music leader, Christopher, took me into his office and on the secretary's counter there at the University of Mobile in the music office, there's a little sign and it says uh, on that sign, read, pray, slay. Read, pray, slay. You know, that's the reality of obedience to this command. Read the word. We can't know how to be more obedient if we don't read. Pray. We can't do what's in here without the power of God. Praying and spending time with Him, communing with Him, so that we realize who we are. And then go forth and slay. Go forth and take down the world. Because you go forward, beloved, in the power of the Most High God. And every day He desires us to do this. And as you do this, you will work out your sanctification. I pray that the Lord will bless you to understand. I pray that he will bless you to desire to look into this word and to ask yourselves the hard question. Is this me? When I see these commands, is this me? Am I fulfilling these things? Am I loving? Am I going out? Am I ministering? Am I encouraging? All of the commands of scripture as you read, don't just read to check off the list. Read slowly. 
hear, see. God is speaking to you. He has a love story for you. He wants to see you accomplish this. He wants to see you receive his good pleasure. I pray that as you desire to do this more, you will see the most amazing blessings because you will know more of the incredible love of the Most High God and that indeed you will recognize that you are working out your salvation and that this is the divine working of God with you.